This is Macro Horizons, episode 158. Don't jimmy me, Jimmy. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 14th. And while Bullard's comments shook the front end of the market last week, we're reminded that a seat at the big table and a vote on the committee does not guarantee thoughtful analysis. As they say in the Fed Fund's futures market, don't jimmy me, Jimmy. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market sold off 10-year yields reached as high as 2.05%, and we saw the 530s curve flatten rather dramatically through 35 basis points. This occurred at the same time the 7s-10s curve inverted, and 5s-10s continued to flatten close to 5 basis points. Overall, this is consistent with what one would expect well into the tightening cycle. What's fascinating about this particular move is that the Fed is actually still buying bonds and actively engaged in QE. We haven't seen the first rate hike. We haven't seen the SOMA runoff announcement. But still, the market is content to push forward with what we would characterize as a typical late cycle flattening. That said, simply because it is occurring more rapidly during this cycle than it has in prior cycles doesn't mean that we consider the move a fade. In fact, our bearishness on the treasury market remains primarily limited to the front end of the market, twos, threes, and increasingly fives, whereas we expect that we're running up against some of the limiting factors further out the curve in 10s, 20s, and 30s. Now, those limiting factors are not new to financial markets and consist of global growth concerns, the longer-term structural deflationary pressures that, while currently offset by short-term supply constraint considerations, will ultimately, over the course of the next five or ten years, keep core inflation and subsequently longer end rates contained. Moreover, even if investors think that inflation comparable to what we saw in the 1980s could become the norm, what we're seeing at this moment is an obvious vote of confidence for the Fed's ability and confirmed willingness to fight inflation. We've noted this before, but it's very striking that one of the key shifts that has occurred in Powell's communication is an emphasis on price stability being important for hiring. And well, it follows logically that employers would want a sense of pricing, particularly from a cost perspective, before they consider adding new employees. But the Fed's framing of this is something of a departure from how we tend to traditionally think of monetary policy, i.e. to promote 
full employment, one would want the easiest policy possible. This reframing allows the Fed to hike, and hike potentially aggressively, in support of both price stability and subsequently maximum employment. This also represents an extension of the hawkish pivot that began in Q4 2021. Let us also not forget that this week saw a strong CPI print. Both headline and core came in above expectations and on a year-over-year basis are trending at the highest levels since 1982. It's notable that the upside surprise on the core monthly print was simply one-tenth. So we printed at 1.6% month over month, while the consensus was for 0.5%. Nonetheless, this provided a bearish impetus for a market that was already predisposed to push rates higher. It was in the wake of this event that we saw 10-year yields back above 2%. Now, the overnight session that followed subsequently demonstrated dip buying interest. Now, this is supportive of our longer-term view that 10- and 30-year yields are in the process of establishing the upper bound for what will be a range throughout the bulk of 2022. Well, as they say at the St. Louis Fed, come on, Jim. Not again, Bullard. The biggest surprise of the week just passed were Bullard's comments in which he effectively said that he would like to see 100 basis points in tightening by the beginning of July and that selling bonds out of SOMA should be on the table. Now, that degree of hawkishness implies a 50 basis point rate hike at the March meeting, which point in fact, we continue to see as highly unlikely. The fact is not wasted on us, however, that after the market's reaction, Bullard is now scheduled to speak on Monday. And our baseline assumption is that he will at least attempt to walk back some of the extreme aspects of his comments. And the market reaction was unquestionably violent. We saw two-year yields cross 160 for their largest single-day increase since June 2009, and the front-end futures market dramatically repriced to a more aggressive presumed path of policy. What makes it so intriguing is that, while yes, Bullard is a voter in 2022, throughout the course of the pandemic, he's been known to be very vocal and, more importantly, very hawkish. Remember, it was only two weeks ago that the FOMC met for their January meeting, where Bullard nor anyone else dissented on the idea of not only keeping rates at zero, but also continuing to buy bonds. This is what makes the idea that the Fed would sneak in an early end to QE via the coupon pass announcement. This has been given some airtime, but such a move would imply a degree of panic at the Fed, which frankly, monetary policymakers have absolutely no interest in conveying, even if they are starting to get somewhat nervous in the wake of the stronger-than-expected CPI data. And the degree of that stronger-than-expected inflation data is also worth highlighting. We saw a one-tenth of a percentage point beat on core inflation, at what was widely expected to be a stronger-than-expected inflation report. So this again leads me to question whether the size of the market reaction was warranted. And even after taking that into consideration, 
say the Fed was very concerned about January's inflation data, even if they did deliver a 50 basis point liftoff rate hike, that wouldn't really have a meaningful effect on the inflation complex until probably the fourth quarter of this year at the earliest. Any Fed action at this point is fighting next year's inflationary battles. And remember, we still have yet to see both the base effects and some of the supply side issues make their way into the data that will, in all likelihood, moderate some of the gains in consumer prices as we get toward the second and third quarter. To be fair, Ben, the core inflation series does continue to be driven by auto prices and housing costs. So the factors that the Fed characterized as transitory earlier in the pandemic continue to contribute to overall prices. Also for context, inflation is now running at the highest level since 1982. And in 1982, we were in a markedly different monetary policy environment. Fed funds ranged between 8.5% and 15%. And the notion of Fed transparency and predictability was in no way, shape, or form what it is today. So while we might marginally be sympathetic to the argument that the Fed's a bit behind the curve on inflation, it's not so much so as to warrant a 50 basis point rate hike to kickstart the tightening campaign. But we have heard some frantic, panicked, scared inquiries about the Fed meeting on Monday, February 14th. Yeah, so that's the discount rate meeting. It's a scheduled known, predictable meeting where the regional Fed presidents get together to talk about the discount rate, which is not the Fed funds rate. And so the idea that this is an emergency meeting at which monetary policy decisions will be made really has little credence when we think about what is actually going to occur at the Fed. They'll be debating increasing the discount rate. It will have a hawkish tone. It always does because regional Fed presidents tend to err more on the side of hawkishness than the board. And at the end of the day, the monetary policy implications will be nil. But that doesn't mean we won't get some very important monetary policy information this next week, specifically Wednesday's release of the January meeting minutes, where it's going to be very interesting to see the level of detail about not only the path of rate hikes, 50 basis points versus 25 basis points, hiking at every meeting, hiking at every quarter, but also how the committee is thinking about balance sheet normalization. Earlier this week, we heard from Bostic and Mester. And they reiterated this idea that they prefer to be more aggressive with the balance sheet rundown and more patient with rate hikes. A faster slowdown of Fed reinvestment will tighten monetary policy, but not provide the same flattening impulse that a series of aggressive rate hikes would. We also heard from Mester about the idea of not only letting the balance sheet run off organically, but at some point, it might be appropriate to sell mortgages directly out of SOMA. Emphasis, some point. 2024 is some point. One could argue 2023 is some point as well. Although our expectation is that there's a lot that will need to go right in terms of the economic expansion, higher inflationary pressures, and the market's ability to absorb tighter financial conditions without a more dramatic response in financial markets. And in the event we ultimately reach that point in terms of normalization and selling mortgages from SOMA, we had an insightful conversation with clients this week about what that might look like. And at this point, the quote-unquote capped method of balance sheet rundown seems to be the path of least resistance, how the Fed will want to normalize the balance sheet. 
However, as we move further into the future, there will be months during which maturing securities and rollover won't meet that cap. So there'll be no reinvestment and the decline in the balance sheet will actually be less than the maximum amount represented by the cap. So one way the Fed may try and smooth out this process is selling enough mortgages on top of whatever is maturing to reach that set dollar amount. Again, reinforcing the idea that when removing monetary policy accommodation, the Fed wants to be gradual and orderly with rate hikes as well as the balance sheet. Moving our attention further out the curve, the week just passed saw 10-year yields reach above 2%. And as we had been suggesting, this did prove to be a buying opportunity, at least on the first attempt. 10-year yields back below 2% certainly resonate as we think about the reaction of the market overall to a more hawkish Fed. And this has been one of our core tenets that we came into 2022 with, and that is that Anything that inspired the Fed to be more aggressive in policy rate normalization would be a net flattener for the yield curve. And while two-year yields moved above 160, the fact that 10-year rates stalled out at effectively 205 speaks to the idea that we will continue to see a flattening impulse as the Fed readies for action and, frankly, once the tightening campaign is well underway. We also did get the February refunding auctions. The 10-year auction stopped at its highest yield since July 2019, and while 30s were the cheapest since May of last year, both the events themselves showed generally solid bidding statistics. The 10-year auction stopped solidly through, and while 30s tailed, that's very much in keeping with the trend we've seen at new issue 30-year auctions. Now, eight of the last eight 30-year refundings have tailed, and in fact, the above-average non-dealer allocation for the long bond really points to a solid structural bid for duration, even as the Fed prepares for its hiking campaign. And that does beg the question, why are rates as low as they are, given the Fed's clearly signaled that they're going to increase five, six times this year and continue that into 2023. In prior cycles, this was characterized as a bit of a conundrum, i.e. the Fed does not have as much control over 10 and 30 year yields as they do in the front end of the curve. In practical terms, we'll argue that the Fed's interest in reestablishing its credibility as an inflation fighter has only reinforced the flattening narrative because the Fed has taken a fair amount of volatility out of the inflation outlook for forward years. That means that break-evens are trending lower and the market has confidence in the Fed's ability to keep inflation expectations contained. Therefore, investors don't need the same degree of inflation premium or term premium to go into the 10 and 30-year sector. Said differently, while there is a fair amount of conversation around the flattening indicating that the Fed is risking a policy error, the fact of the matter is that 10 and 30-year yields are going to be in a lower range over the course of the next several years than they have in the past. And what's occurring right now is that the market is establishing the upper bound of that range, at least for the next several months. And another dynamic that's contributing to the lower outright level of long-end yields, and something I would argue was hinted at at the 3- and 10-year auctions, is strong foreign demand for treasuries. Elevated indirect allocations for both 3s and 10s, while not a direct one-for-one -one correlation with overseas interest at auctions, 
does point to a willingness on a global scale to add dollar-denominated safe haven exposure. While the recovery in the COVID situation in the U.S. and maybe the West more broadly has been improving meaningfully, that's not universally the case. And from a purely economic perspective, there continues to be fairly meaningful headwinds facing parts of Europe and Asia that will keep investors from those geographies interested in capturing what is still a comparatively elevated yield in the U.S. As two poignant examples, German growth is already struggling to stay positive, and we heard from the PBOC that more stimulus might be required. So from a global perspective, not exactly a robust and aggressive economic rebound, even as the influence of COVID continues to wane. Let us not forget the geopolitical tensions that surround the situation in the Ukraine and any potential response by Russia or Europe to the increasing tensions. While this hasn't triggered a significant flight to quality in financial markets thus far, we'd be remiss not to at least have that on the list of potential triggers. And the situation in Eastern Europe brings up what's been going on in energy markets. We saw WTI move above $90 a barrel for the first time since 2013, and within the headline inflation data, energy, somewhat unsurprisingly, was a meaningful contributor to the upside there. Given the importance of energy and food costs as it relates to consumption for lower-income households, these increases in price are arguably operating on a tax on consumption, another detail that does not bode particularly well for growth not only domestically but abroad as well not to mention the specific European issues around natural gas and the reliance on Russian exports, to say that spending potential is being eroded at least to a degree by higher energy costs adds to the case for relatively contained yields in the longer end of the curve. So Ben, what you're essentially saying is WTH, WTI. LOL. The week ahead will be spent continuing to digest some of the recent Fed speak and incorporating updates that we anticipate will come throughout the course of the week. There are already several scheduled speakers, not least of which being Bullard, whose comments on Thursday really helped trigger the 25 basis point sell-off in the two-year sector. In addition, we do see the FOMC meeting minutes from the January meeting, and we're expecting some additional clarity insofar as the conversation around the balance sheet runoff and whether there's truly the potential for the Fed to choose to sell bonds directly out of SOMA. There are some or a few on the committee who would consider selling bonds out of SOMA, but we'll look to the minutes to get a more comprehensive take on what the committee as a whole is expecting in terms of balance sheet runoff. The other major question, and this is the one that continues to drive the shape of the yield curve, is to what extent is the Fed really considering a 50 basis point rate hike next month? We're still in the 25 basis point liftoff camp. Our expectations for this tightening cycle is that the backbone of the hikes will be 25 basis points every quarter, and the off-cycle meetings will be used to augment the Fed's hawkishness. So given the data thus far in Q1, we're comfortable with the notion that we see a March rate hike of 25 basis points, a May rate hike of 25 basis points, a June hike of 25 basis points, a 
balance sheet runoff announcement in July, another quarter point hike in September, and it's not until the November meeting that there could be a bit of variability in how the Fed chooses to address inflation at this point. Now, that certainly is not going to prevent the market from pricing in more rate hikes, and we already see, and as we can see currently in the Fed Fund's futures market, Investors are debating between six and seven hikes. That's a lot of tightening and implies either a very strong start or 50 basis point moves as the cycle gets going. Thus far, while equities are certainly off the peaks, generally speaking, financial conditions have remained contained, even if real 10-year yields spike to negative 40 basis points. But at the end of the day, unless we see a much more dramatic correction in equities that spikes, fix, and subsequently tightens financial conditions, the Fed has a clear path forward at that 25 basis points cadence. If the Fed chooses to signal that they are in fact open to moving 50 basis points in March, the most obvious risk that comes to mind is the market assumes that we'll have 50 basis point hikes either every quarter or at every meeting. And that would serve, frankly, to invert the yield curve, twos, tens, fives, thirties, and fives, tens, to say nothing of what it could potentially do to the equity market. At the end of the day, the Fed's emphasis on transparency, predictability, and a measured approach to monetary policymaking leaves us in the 25 basis point March hike camp until or unless we hear otherwise from the Fed over the course of the next two weeks. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. If monetary policy were a Winter Olympic sport, would it be the luge or the skeleton? It really comes down to diving in head first or with both feet. Get it? Although point in fact, it's actually more akin to curling. Stones, sweeping brooms, and volunteers to provide enthusiastic instruction. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. 
It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.